I'm Zach DePrima, and with me is Dr. Alexander <laughs> James DePrima. Alex, is it too early to say that uh, you're, no. you're Dr. DePrima? From what I understand, you passed the defense, you're a doctor. And let me just say, nothing like three letters to <laughs> affirm your worth. You know, I just figure I'll put my identity in this, and... Um, it just tells you I'm really worth something. <laughs> that's why you do it. Yeah. You, yeah, that's, you that's, do it for the letters after your name. That's why I did it. Yeah. So um, you didn't know, but at, at the church you work for now, you get a big pay bump now that you're PhD, correct? Uh, no. <laughs> Not that I'm aware of. <laughs> so, yeah, th- this has all been... Uh, yeah, all, all been expense and no, uh, no, no income yet. So, so, for those who don't know, Alex has been a PhD candidate at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he's he, he's been supervised by uh, Dr. Nathan Finn, and he's just defended his dissertation on an aspect of the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. Alex, what is your thesis? My thesis has to do with the place of good works and benevolence ministry, mercy ministry in the life of the individual Christian the mission of the church and the ministry of the pastor Hmm. um, in in Spurgeon's thought. Mm -hmm. So how he would have incorporated those elements in his own life and how he would have encouraged other Christians to think about Hmm. mercy ministry, social activism, things like that. Mm -hmm. And for, for, I mean, there are many people that don't know anything about Spurgeon, but for those who tend to know Spurgeon and look up to Spurgeon mm-hmm. and, and would call him a hero, mm-hmm. This that tends to be an aspect of his ministry people don't know much about. So That's exactly right. I'm, I'm eager to talk to you about that in That's a few right. minutes. But before we get into that, Alex, can you just explain to anybody listening, who is Charles Spurgeon? Charles Spurgeon, uh, the, the quickest thing I say to people who literally know nothing about him is that he was like the Billy Graham of uh, England in the 19th century. Hmm. So there was no preacher bigger than Spurgeon. Um, he pastored uh, the largest church in Christendom at the time, in the heart of the largest city in the world at that time, in mm. London. Uh, he had a prodigious career as a preacher, started very young, was pastoring his first church at the age of 17, and um, uh, preached uh, uh, for the next 40 years to tens of thousands of people. Um, he his, his Sunday meetings at the Metropolitan Tabernacle of the church he pastored had about 6,000 in the morning and 6,000 in the evening, wow. but he preached a lot during the week as well. Wrote lots of books, um, printed his sermons, which are now uh, published in uh, 63 volumes. Um, actually, that, that number is growing uh, mm. as of today. And so uh, he's known, especially as a preacher. What I talk about in my dissertation is his social ministry, his benevolence ministries out of his church. He uh he founded uh, two orphanages, a pastor's training college, a host of ministries out of his church, just a remarkably fruitful servant of mm. God. Alex, why should any Christian uh, take an interest in Charles Spurgeon? And may- maybe also, why should any pastor take an interest in Charles Spurgeon? One of the reasons I would encourage any Christian to pick up the sermons of Spurgeon and read them is because I'm not aware, I mean, honestly, I'm not aware of a single preacher who better exudes in his writing and preaching the spirit and heart and ethos of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. 
So he will, he will, I often, I often have this experience reading Spurgeon as he's talking about the Lord. I think, is the Lord really this good? Hmm. Could he be this wonderful? I mean, he just, he just, the way he writes about the Savior and the way he speaks about him and preaches about him, you will find your heart warm to Christ. And, um, and so that's why I would encourage Christians, and he reads very well. He, he, um, you know, he, I guess preached over 150 years ago, um, but you know he he reads like a contemporary preacher in a lot of ways. I mean, still still so accessible, and for pastors, I think he's a wonderful model for not just preaching but for pastoral ministry, uh, for um, emphasizing the sufficiency of the Word of God, the preached Word, uh, for emphasizing meaningful, you know, shepherding ministry in the life of the congregation. Um, all sorts of leadership lessons to learn from Spurgeon, has a pastor's heart, loves his people. There's so much to learn from a pastoral model there. You, you mentioned it already, but what would you consider to be the best way for a Christian to familiarize themselves with, uh, with Spurgeon? Best thing to do is to read his sermons. Hmm. Yeah, if, if, um, I mean, he wrote something like 70 plus books, but um, not all of them are great, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, but yeah, if you wanna if you wanna just get a, a feel for the preacher, pick up any volume of the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit, um, and or they, they're all kinds of popular collections right. of his sermons, and just read his sermons, and you'll get you'll get a sense of the man. If you want to learn more about Spurgeon, like from a biography, I always recommend Arnold Dalimore's biography. I think it's just called uh, Spurgeon: A New Biography by mm. Arnold Dalimore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Ian Murray also has a biography, The Forgotten Spurgeon. What does that focus on? Yeah, it's not exactly a biography, but it emphasizes, uh, it, it, it looks at Spurgeon as a controversialist and some mm. of the major controversies he was involved in. It uh, looks at his Calvinism. It looks at uh, his emphasis on uh, conservative theology during the downgrade controversy, some of those types of things. Mm. Very good book. Mm. Excellent book. Mm. Well, there's many things we can discuss about Spurgeon. We can talk about his uh, evangelicalism. We can talk about his Calvinism. But you've written on his activism. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about Spurgeon's activism? Yeah. Uh, Spurgeon, uh, uh, like I said, founded a couple of orphanages, a pastor's training college. Uh, by 1884, there were 66 benevolent ministries operating out of the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Many were founded by wait, Spurgeon. Wait, wait, say that again. How many? 66. Wow, yeah. and um, he was heavily involved in in almost all of them to some degree or another, giving money to them, chairing meetings related to them. Um, he founded a number of those ministries. So that's astonishing. Yeah, this is a guy who who is well known for gospel proclamation, but also opened his arms wide to the widows and orphans of London, hmm. London's prostitutes, London's. Uh, police officers. I wouldn't say he opened his arms wide to the process of one. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't. Yeah, <laughs> no, but he, you know, he he uh, advocated for uh, fallen women in London, as they were called. Um, he, you know, you have accounts of him, uh, you know, putting on an annual tea for blind people. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just unbelievable servant of God in that in that realm, and was uh, engaged to some degree politically. Hmm. Um, very open on his own political views. Made a number of. Uh, fairly significant stances uh, politically to advocate for those in need. Uh, one of the most famous ones is his stand against slavery in the American South in yeah. the 1850s, for which he took tremendous flack. I mean, he, he received death threats. Uh, they stopped publishing his sermons in America after that. Uh, so he suffered a lot you know, from, from that stand. But um, 
Yeah, but, but what, what, what we learn as we look, look to Spurgeon's sermons when he actually taught about this stuff, he believed that it was essential, not optional, essential for all Christians to be engaged in some measure in mercy ministry, benevolent ministry, acts of, of kindness and charity, good works that honor God and uh, do good to our fellow man. Mm-hmm. He believed that that was part of the fruit of the new birth, that was part of being a Christian. Mm-hmm. And he also believed it formed a very important part of the mission of the church. Now, Spurgeon's very anti-social gospel. Uh, he, he, he does not think that mercy ministry trumps you know, preaching of the gospel, but he does believe it serves gospel proclamation. And so he believed the, the um, you know, works of charity and mercy should keep pace with the preaching of faith, he, he says. Hmm. And um, so churches should organize for mercy ministry, organize to do good to the poor, organize to advocate for the oppressed and the disenfranchised, and should do so to commend the gospel mm-hmm. and, and the, the truth of God's word. And then he also emphasizes in pastoral ministry, pastors must be known for large hearts of compassion and care hmm. for those who are in need. So those are some of the, the highlights of what I wrote on. Alex, when we talk about activism, I'm a conservative evangelical. Mm-hmm. Many people listening to this are probably conservative mm-hmm. evangelicals. When we hear the word activism, it's not like a four-letter cuss word to us, mm-hmm. but we tend to kind of cringe when we hear that word. Yeah. We tend to think social gospel. We tend to think social mm-hmm. justice. How would Spurgeon inform us on, on that issue of activism? Yeah, when we think of activism, we often think of political activism, hmm. which which is not Spurgeon. I mean, he, he does engage to some degree in addressing particular political issues, but only because he believes they, they touch on religious issues, you know, for the most part. So, so, so what do you mean by that? Well, uh, some of the concerns that he was most vocal about, uh, uh, so like I said, slavery in the American South, he'd say this is clearly an, uh, an evil Christian should be speaking out against. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he was very, he wasn't a pure pacifist, but he was extremely negative about war hmm. and um, thought Christians sh- should in general be very negative about war. Um, but it's, it's biblical concerns that are driving him to address those issues. He doesn't really talk about the... The tax code mm-hmm. in in the UK in his mm-hmm. day, you know, he doesn't talk a lot about you know voter registration and uh, you know the the franchise or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. So, um, yeah, it's it's particular religious concerns that are driving him to particular and, issues. And in his day, there would have been a a liberal party and the conservative party with the Tories, the conservative party then. Well, the Tories are the conservative party. The liberals uh, are often referred to as the Whig party as Would well. Spurgeon have been outspoken about what party yeah. he was affiliated with? Oh, yeah. With, Spurgeon or? identified with the liberal party. Don't think like a, liberals in America today. The right. liberal party was not at all like, like what we think of as liberal. Right. Uh, yeah. He was liberal. He was very close friends with William Gladstone, who was the liberal prime minister. And um, Gladstone often came to his church. They would exchange letters. And at least in one case, he, he, in the 1880, he publicly advocated for a liberal candidate in uh, a local election. And so he's a guy who's willing to speak to politics. Um, he's not nearly as political as some uh, American evangelicals have been in the past century or so. Was it fashionable for preachers in that day to speak to politics? Uh, it certainly was not unheard of. Uh, yeah, I'd say it was quite common. Um, but no one had the reach of a Charles Spurgeon. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had uh, the power of the pulpit and the power of the pen. Mm-hmm. And so his influence would have mattered more. I mean, if, if you had celebrity preachers in those days, he was one of them, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, 
he stood to influence quite a lot of people. And so um, in terms of his reach, you know, and pastors in general as citizens of, of, of society would have been viewed more highly, their opinion would carry more weight and all of that. And so, but Spurgeon, he doesn't, he doesn't like when politics um, enter into preaching. He's mm-hmm. against that, against political preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but he, he knows how to speak to political issues. But we shouldn't think of him as this guy who's picketing, you know, and protesting and trying to organize people for political action or something like that. His activism is more in the sense of evangelical activism or Christian activism, like doing work for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Be about Christian work. Mm-hmm. Evangelize, pass out tracts, plant churches, send missionaries, start orphanages, uh, soup kitchens, uh, uh, street missions, ragged schools, almshouses, like like work for Jesus, that kind of activism. And that's the kind of activism I, I wrote about in the, the dissertation. As you look at our current day I mean, and on this subject, what can Christians today learn from Spurgeon? Uh, do you, well, maybe I should ask, I mean, do you, do you view... Um, evangelicals to be very deficient in in the area of activism yeah th- this type of activism yeah yeah definitely i yeah, mean so, you're, you're a local church pastor i mean what, what could your church learn from spurgeon in this way i think every christian could learn like spurgeon says it well he says every christian uh is a philanthropist by profession generous by force of grace uh he says a, a christian by definition should mean a friend of man hmm. and so i do think christians uh ought to be known for good works that the world sees and it's in seeing those works they bring they give glory to our father who is in heaven matthew 5 and so i i think i think christians should recover a vision for being um known for kindness and compassion and mercy and charity and that that love should be extended as as far as as sin and far as the curse is found and so, so yes, churches should be beacons of light in the community, and people should be thrilled when a church is planted in their community because they know that means good things for the needy in that area. Hmm. Um, so, so that's one thing I think he would tell us: like mm-hmm. we should just have large hearts for people, and mm-hmm. we should seek to combat suffering in the world, and mm-hmm. we should seek to to help those who are weak and oppressed and disenfranchised and afflicted. Okay, now, now. He also, I think, helps us understand the proper balance between gospel proclamation and mercy ministry. Yeah. So I think for those who have embraced something like a social gospel or social justice movement, Spurgeon's a big corrective. He's going to say, guys, at most, mercy ministry serves the ministry of the gospel. Gospel proclamation is the big thing. Mm. Building churches is the big thing. And mercy ministry is necessary as the fruit of a, a reborn life and as a testament to the truth of the gospel and the power of the gospel. Uh, so I think, I think for that camp who's more prone toward social justice, a social gospel, th- they need to hear that corrective from Spurgeon. For the group that thinks all we're supposed to be about is just having Bible studies, hmm. Spurgeon says, no, you're meant to get out there to the highways and byways and do work for Jesus. Evangelize, plant churches. Uh, embrace the poor and the needy and help them. Provide care for those yeah. in your community who are in need. Have a heart for your communities. And you know, Spurgeon certainly had a heart for London. And um, 
you know, there were uh, between the Sunday schools and ragged schools, 8,000 kids in London hmm. who were enrolled in these schools. Uh, Sunday afternoons, a thousand members from the Tabernacle would go out into the community. They'd gather these kids kind of like in backyard Bible club type fashion, teach them the word of God. Um, 1,500 orphans are, are cared for over the course of his life. Uh, that that ministry, it was the Stockwell Orphanage in Spurgeon's day. That ministry still exists. It's, mm. it's known as Spurgeon's Children's Charity today. Mm. They serve something like 40,000 kids a year mm. and um, provide all kinds of ministries for needy children. So anyway, Spurgeon, Christians should be known for this kind of work and churches should be known for this kind of work. Mm. Well, Alec, this is a podcast on Christian singing and Christian song and hymns. Uh, what was Spurgeon's con- contribution to congregational singing? Did he have thoughts on that subject? Yeah, definitely. You know, one of the the uh, you know great things um, about Spurgeon is he's a lover of hymns. He he reproduced his own hymnal uh, for his church. It was called Our Own Hymn Book, and you actually still buy that hymnal. It's available um, online. And um, big advocate for hymns, he quotes hymns all the time in his sermons. And um, his church was well known for these really stirring services, these very mere services, singing, prayer, preaching of the word, reading of scripture. And so uh, they would sing usually, you know, maybe two or three songs or so, and um, uh, always a cappella, always a cappella. Uh, Spurgeon was not a fan of organs, is not a huge fan of instrumentation, uh, though he, he it wasn't always critical of those who did make use of those things. but. He liked acapella, so at, at a service, if you went to a service at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, uh, Spurgeon would, would uh, uh, excuse me, um, uh, uh, what, what they call a presenter, mm-hmm. which is like a worship leader in some ways, he would call the congregation to stand, and he would, either through a, a, a tuning fork or a pitch pipe, you know, hit, hit the, the note that the first song would be in, let's say it's the old hundredth, you know. And then the congregation would launch into a cappella singing, and that's that's how they sung. And the accounts we have of those services are so stirring, of just you know, 6,000 voices united in song. And so, yeah, Spurgeon, a great lover of hymns, has his own hymn book, um, and, and definitely was a big advocate for congregational singing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I reached out to um, Matt Boswell this week on on Twitter. Uh, Matt Boswell is a uh, modern hymn writer, and he's also a pastor, I believe, in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, he recently, he's he's also a Spurgeon scholar, mm-hmm. and he did his PhD on, or his study on Spurgeon and congregational singing. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked him what was Spurgeon's favorite hymn, if he mm-hmm. had one, or did, did he know? Mm-hmm. And he says he quotes... Uh, Watts, that's Isaac Watts, three to one more than any other hymn writer in his sermons. And he says, Come Ye Sinners, is the mm-hmm. hymn he quoted most often. And that's a hymn we're going to profile uh, mm-hmm. this evening. And that um, is a hymn written by Joseph Hart. Joseph Hart lived in the 18th century. His years uh, precisely were 1712 to 1768. And uh, this hymn is based on Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, which is one of those texts that every Christian should, should know from heart. And that's when the Lord Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, he says to sinners, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." This was a, a, a text that uh, Hart himself, Joseph Hart, he needed to learn uh, with his life. 
from about the year when he was 21 years old um, until he was was well into his 30s, he um, struggled deeply with spiritual matters, and he would kind of start with fits and starts and, and seem to show fruit in his life, but would find himself often relying on his own self, relying on his own righteousness, uh, finding security and solace in his own works for his uh, standing with God. And it wasn't until later in his life, I think in 1857, that he was sincerely converted uh, by the Lord. And he recounts his own experience, and he says, Affliction befalling me, I began to sink deeper and deeper into conviction of my nature's evil, the deceitfulness and hardness of my heart, the wickedness of my life, the shallowness of my Christianity, and the blindness of my devotion. I saw that I was in a dangerous state, and I must have a better religion than I had yet experienced before I could, with any propriety, call myself a Christian. I found now by woeful experience, that faith was not my power. And the question with me now was, not whether I would be a Christian or no, not whether I should repent and believe, but whether God would give me true repentance and a living faith. And it's not until uh, Joseph Hart realized that, that c- conversion, salvation was a work of God, that he was thoroughly converted and, and experienced life change. Mm-hmm. And he speaks of this experience quite, quite vividly in the hymn, Come Ye Sinners. Um, Come Ye Sinners, which is in many ways a, an exposition of, of Matthew 11. The first verse says, Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. And uh, the refrain for this song, which has been appropriated as a refrain, it was originally just a verse, but what we now use as the, as the chorus, says, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. Alex, what do you appreciate about this hymn? Well, I think it captures the spirit of that text so well, the, the Matthew 11, 28-30 text. I think it it works very well as an invitation to those who are outside of Christ mm. to embrace the Lord. It's so appropriate for Christians to sing too. Yes. It's an invitation to Christians. We we still we always need to be coming to Christ. And we need to hear that um that uh uh, uh admonition, I think it's in the second verse. Uh, let not conscience make yes. you linger nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to know your need of him. Like, like I need to, that stirs my heart and my mind to come to Jesus, come to Jesus. There's nothing that should keep me from him. And so um, I, think it's, I think it's a wonderful song for churches to sing. It's a wonderful song to open a service with, Yeah, uh, inviting sinners to come to Christ. It's a wonderful song of response at the end of a sermon. Mm-hmm. Again, inviting sinners to come to Christ. It's a wonderful song of preparation, inviting sinners to come to Christ. So... Um, very versatile in the way it can be used. And there's a number of different tunes to this song, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so there's lots of different ways, depending on your church, lots of different congregational tunes you mm-hmm. know, that, that could work for it. Yeah, I find that verse that, that you quoted, all the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. That's so instructive to the nature of faith. I think may, many evangelicals often wonder, you know, is, is faith a work or not? Mm-hmm. Well, is hunger a work? Is, is yeah. thirst a work? Is, yeah. is being a beggar and, and needing money, is, is that a work? Yeah. Well, that, that's what faith is. Mm. It, it's coming to Christ for bread, it, yes. for food, for our souls. It's coming to Christ for drink, yeah. for, to quench our thirst. I think John Calvin said that. He said that faith is, 
is lifting up my empty cup. Yes. You know, which which is a wonderful way to Which if you want to call that a work, well, go for it. If you yeah. want to take credit for that, I, that's just strange. But I but I, well, I think that's the nature of faith. And, and to Spurgeon's point, or to Spurgeon's point, Spur- Spurgeon loved the hymn Rock of Ages. Hmm. And he loved quoting that line, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Yes. I don't have anything to offer, but I, I, I am clinging to Christ. That's yeah. my work. That's what I'm doing. I'm grabbing onto him. Similar sentiment. Well, friends, with that, we're out of time. Alex, thank you for your time. Thank you, brother.